Hello and welcome to The Stack. For this week's show, I speak with Joe Allison, editor of HTSI, the celebrated luxury magazine from the Financial Times. Also on the show, we pay a visit to Biblioteca in London and a short film made by a celebrated architectural title. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Since Joe Allison took charge of the iconic HTSI, former How to Spend It, title at the FT, she implemented fresh changes to the magazine. The magazine now has 38 outings in a year, a much higher number than in previous years. To discuss its success and a little sneak peek about the upcoming issues, I've paid a visit to Joe at the FT office here in London. Joe Ellison, editor of HTSI, so welcome to Monaco Radio. I'm a big fan of what you've done uh, to the magazine. I mean, the magazine was always great, but I think you brought, I don't know, a fresh take uh, oh, on it. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind. Tell us a bit more about since when you started at the UK, at the FT, actually. At the FT, I joined, I think, in July 2014. So I'd been working at British Vogue previously to that. And then I took on the role of fashion editor when Vanessa Friedman went to the New York Times. So I took her place and did that for nearly five years, I think, because the HTSI job came up um, in 2019 and I started there in September 2019. And I think you saw potential as well in the magazine, right? Because it's interesting when, you know, a lot of things are moving digital. Yep. But I see the, the schedule. I mean, now there's a magazine literally every week, let's be honest. I think we do 38 issues a year now. So we've upped the number from something like, I think it was around 30. So I think we've added another eight. But previous to my getting there, there'd been a slightly anomalous schedule where we did some publication on Friday. So we had 12 issues that would come out on a Friday and then a certain number that came out on a Saturday. So we wanted to streamline that and just put everything out on the same weekend so that people knew that when they bought the weekend paper, if it were HTSI was available, then it would be there. So that was like a kind of early thing that we try. I wanted to do as soon as possible because I'd never heard of a magazine which came out on different days of the week. It just was too complicated. And then I suppose from a magazine point of view, I guess I'd worked on a, you know, a glossy monthly publication at British Vogue for seven years. And so... I had a real love and experience of like putting together a magazine and I still really kind of relish that opportunity, even though there are fewer and fewer magazines to do that with. And HSI was always this kind of like tantalizing possibility in the room that was like, if you could only kind of get your hands on that, the things you could do. So, you know, it was always like, it was always such a kind of golden sort of like opportunity. Besides the changing name about a year ago or so, I mean, what else? Because you did bring some new kind of features to the magazine. Of course, it's the magazine that we all know and loved for many years, but there, it feels fresher, if I may say. Oh, that's very kind of you. I think when I came, the magazine had been conceived in the late 90s. And it was very much, I think, in response to a moment then where there was a big city bonuses. And I think the magazine had been kind of conceived as this sort of very city focus, like where to spend your bonus focus. And I suppose over the years, I mean, it had been 25 years, I think when I got there or we celebrated that anniversary really soon after, 
I think what I was thinking of is what is the kind of consumer landscape now? What does luxury mean to people? And I think it was about maybe slightly loosening up some of the definitions that had come to define the magazine as it was. And I think I wanted to really bring out more of the lifestyle content and look at a kind of broader spectrum maybe of things that might fall under the kind of language of luxury. So there was a real opportunity to talk about like health and wellness, which I don't think had been massively covered beforehand. There was a lot more focus on interiors and houses, like how people live, what their house style is, rather than design focus for stories that were merely talking about selling furniture. I think it was a bit more about offering curations and sort of a different lifestyle so that people could look at it from a slightly more inspirational point of view than a go out and buy this point of view. Definitely. And talking about buying, actually, I did enjoy the gift oh, yeah. issue, which I think <laughs> is from last week. Favorite. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It, it was amazing. So it was still definitely like a guide of things to buy. But, it, you know, it just felt kind of natural and lovely. And... I mean, I think the essence of how to spend it in its original ethos and mandate and what we all still think today is like it's about celebrating and champion, championing things that we love and things that we think you should like know about. And obviously we are a consumer title. So a lot of those things are available to buy. So you know, we haven't kind of lost sense of like the fact that we're not, we're a consumer title. It's just that I think maybe where things might have been much more kind of prescriptive in terms of what to buy. Now we suggest something or we show a lifestyle that might go and inspire you to do something that is but very much in the same spirit as I think we brought to British Vogue as well. I, I've always worked under that. Like it's a mood board. It's not necessarily a kind of shopping list. What do you think HDSI and, and perhaps FT Weekend in general means for the FT brand? Because I think it's becoming more and more valuable, at least in my opinion, because <laughs> I also feel as, as well the FT as a brand is super international as well. I think mm -hmm. it perhaps is the most international of the British papers as well. But what do you think about that, that, that this kind of weekend? Like where do we sit yeah. in the paper? I mean, we're a kind of beautiful island, I think, for the mm. FT. I mean, the FT has this incredibly specific core readership during the week and a reader that is looking for a very specific kind of news coverage which I suppose is in itself quite a not a niche interest but certainly a kind of self-selecting group of people who work professionally and need to know about our markets and companies and things like that but I think in the last sort of 50 years that's changed enormously in terms of what the FT offering is and I think the weekend is this kind of natural extension of offering a kind of much broader range of features about what's going on in the world and what you should know about and hopefully presented in the same authoritarian but also author rather authorit authoritative <laughs> yes. but also curated manner so that whoever picks it up kind of has a digest of all the things that they need to know and the weekend really adds all the other sections that perhaps aren't so kind of like well covered by news and I think you know weekend is maybe a slightly misleading title because obviously a lot of our content now is mixed in with the weekly stuff but we are the things that sort of sit a little bit adjacent to the kind of absolute sort of specific news agenda. Let's talk about some of the amazing features. I know this interview is coming out this Saturday where, you know, where there's a new issue of HDSI oh, as well. Uh, and the rose on the cover as well, which is fantastic. Oh, you yeah. know? And, and again, I haven't seen an interview with, with both of them. So again, it's quite exclusive, you know. So you managed to get some incredible content. So I think a lot of those people, they trust the brand, I feel. 
I think where we are, I mean, I'm not so fool as to think that HGSI is in itself like this amazing publication that does all these wonderful things and gets exclusives outside of where it sits. So I think it's because RFT readership is so strong that brands are obviously very excited to kind of be involved with HGSI. We're very much um, a kind of conjoined entity. So they get the kind of halo effect of like the Financial Times benediction, I think, by being in HGSI. But obviously we're the kind of glossy manifestation of all the things that are like nice and, you know, quite civilized. We're not an adversarial publication. HGSI is about how to spend it. It's not about how not to spend it. So we don't do kind of like big investigative pieces where we're kind of like telling people about kind of awful things that are happening. We are about the nice things in, in life and that's why brands want to be in it. I mean, to your point about the row, that's a conversation I've been having actually weirdly since I left the Stardust in, 20, in 2019, which is when the last interview with the row was. And then I moved across the floor and I've pretty much been talking to them ever since about doing another one. So yeah, that's like how long it took, five years. Well, sometimes that's all it takes. And another story, which I think was in a few issues ago, and I think even you wrote in your editor's letter to say, oh, is this a story for us? It was the start guy. Um, you know, oh, the, yeah. Yeah, you know it's so weird because <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I was seeing everything everywhere. I was like, but who is the guy? What, yeah. What's going on? But when I saw on the FT, I was like, on your magazine, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, well, that was thing, an interesting one. I love that. I think the thing for me about being editor of a magazine, which is kind of ostensibly about taste and consumer preferences, is that it can become too narrow focused. And I think sometimes there's real merit in doing things that are stories that aren't necessarily to my taste. Because it's not called Joe Ellison's HGSI, it's called HGSI. And so I want to cater to a kind of as broader reach of readers as possible. And I did find Gustav Guy, he's a watch influencer for anyone who doesn't know. I did find him sort of like peculiarly fascinating as a character. And, you know, he's making money. So he definitely, he was a good, he, he was a good story in as much as I ended up really wanting to read it and kind of slightly kind of finding it massively distasteful and dubiously funny. But I think that's, you want to sort of like press buttons and, you know, it can't all be kind of beautiful Japanese ceramics. It has to have a, it has to have like breadth. Love that. I love that. Not, I mean, we do love Japanese ceramics, love but you Japanese know, ceramics, exactly. But we can't just do Japanese ceramics. Exactly. That wouldn't be what we are. And Joe, tell us, give us a little preview of whatever you can say for the rest of the year, because I do think this is a very busy period for HDSI. Of course, that's when people, well, are buying or planning yeah. things to do next year in terms of travel. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you can mention this and also perhaps do you have any plans for 2024 for the time? Oh my God, we do. We're starting to already because I think most of our conversations are kind of leading up to around six months in advance of things. And obviously there are a few big anchor points of next year. You know, we're looking towards Paris. Obviously there's going to be the Olympics. So we're kind of beginning to think about, well, we should be a bit further along probably thinking about what we should be doing with regards to that and how we approach it and sport as a theme and the kind of athletes that are involved and all of the kind of brand tie-ins there. There's loads and loads of opportunity and it's just about like kind of filtering through what we want our message and our kind of what our, our features should be around that. We do a guest edit always in May, which we're talking about at the moment. So that's also a kind of big moment in the year. We've got an arts issue coming out in February, which is well underway. And I quite like for me, just to give things direction, I sometimes quite like themes within themes. So you'll have a themed issue like design or arts or property and you know they're there, but then it's okay, how do we kind of bring this together even further with something that kind of might be a thread through it as well? 
So we're kind of working on a few of those at the moment. So it's all really boring and cryptic. And then leading up to Christmas, we are just into like the last few heavyweight issues now. So the one going to press at the moment is like a really exciting project with a brand that we've been working on for about eight months. And then we do a big philanthropy issue, which is coming out at the beginning of December, which is how to give it, um, which we introduced, I think, in the first year. I think we did the first one in 2019 and we've done one now every year since, which is a very nice way to kind of look at other ways of spending. And then we'll be going into the wellness issue for January, which is all about feeling good, but it's trying not to be that. too, <laughs> but trying not to be totally cheesy. Like my favorite feel good issue was we actually did an exclusive interview with Tracy Emin, who had just been given a really good prognosis for her cancer treatment. And it was the first time she'd spoken for a year. And it's just instead of that, like, feel great, January, la, la, la. It was just a really nice way of doing, I thought, um, a feel-good theme, which can be a ghastly cliche and actually having something to genuinely feel good about. And, Joe, this is a question I ask everyone, you know, the editors I interview. I mean, what do you read, what do by I the mean? way? It can be magazines or I mean, I'm not going to, like, or... surprise you, I don't think, with any of my... You'll be like, oh, really? You do? <laughs> oh, God, you know, New Yorker, obviously, New York Times. I like to keep abreast of what's going on in WSJ. I love Emma LeMond, obviously. I mean, all the rivals. I am still reading Condé Nast titles, although possibly not as much as I was. I am quite interested to see what's going on at Airmail under Graydon because I think he's taken a lot of the elements of Vanity Fair that he did so well and is kind of working them in this kind of online platform that I find, you know, I've been tracking it. I read, I wouldn't say I was like a tremendous uh, signer upper to newsletters and things. I kind of just get a bit overwhelmed with the amount of stuff. I've recently subscribed to Haaretz, which I might have pronounced wrongly, which I think has been an amazing source of information mm. about the Middle East. Washington Post I'll look at. I mean, I try to kind of keep an eye on everything. Oh, and I love like New York Magazine and The Cut. They just do things so brilliantly. But yeah, I'll kind of pick up anything. I'm still quite a print magpie in that respect. I do love print and I do love looking at layouts and talking nerdvilles about fonts and things. It's, it's totally my bag. Thank you very much, Joe. And this weekend's FT has a brand new issue too. On the cover, the stealthy success of The Row, with an exclusive interview with Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. And now we stay in London via Kyiv. Biblioteca is a reference library that holds a collection of 8,000 volumes of rare and out-of-print artist publications, books and magazines on art, architecture, photography and design. It also runs a public program of readings, screenings, exhibitions and music events. I spoke with Biblioteca founder and director Hlibi Velihorsky on their new premises on Montag Street in Bloomsbury. Originally, Biblioteca was founded in Kyiv. Biblioteca is a library of artist publications. It started in 2016 in Kiev, but we were based here in London since 2020. And the idea is simple. There are like two directions that we work in. One is we collect artist publications because now is a really exciting time to do this. And the other one, we work we experiment with what is the model for a library today, for a public library, and like how library can do an exciting program of uh, music and screenings and exhibitions, and how doing these things 
in the library space renders all of those things in a very unique way. Tell us a bit about the, the type of actually publications you have. I see books, but I also see some magazine. I saw Isolati, which we had on the stack uh, yeah. a, f- a few months ago. So you're quite open. I mean, there are zines as well. So different types of print, right? Yeah. So like we have, in terms of our collection, we have quite a few different things, which are very broadly connected through the theme of arts. So, yeah, here we have the uh, Photo Book Show UK, which is a project which has been doing photography books exhibitions since 2011. And that's their entire archive. So many of these things are out of print and some of them, like artists would send them a dummy copy even before they would publish the thing so it would be seen. We got bits of architecture and graphic design, more photography, zines. Yeah, we got this like, a few collections of zines. One question, tell us about the move from Kyiv to London. Why have you decided to choose London? And I know you had a previous location, uh, which was, I believe, in Peckham, but now you're in Bloomsbury. Tell us a bit about this kind of different kind of spaces that Biblioteca took place. Yeah, okay, so the story is, uh, yeah. We had three spaces in Kyiv since 2016. So like first one, it was in photography school, and then we moved to this art center called Plivka, and we've been there for a couple of years, which has been like super amazing because they were like running this uh, super rich program of electronic music events, which worked really well uh, with what we do here. That place closed and the library went into storage for some time. And then in 2020, this gallery called Arcadia Misa, they used to be in Peckham, but now they're central. Basically, yeah, they offered me to take over the space in Peckham, which was quite amazing. So we've been there for three years, which has been really an incredible time because I think those three years really put together the community around the project and like uh, it brought together all of the people we work with. And it somehow like naturally just uh, uh, became the center of gravity for actually like, yeah, the things that we wanted to do, they basically came on our doorstep regularly. So that was quite nice. And then, yeah, we closed that space last May. And now this newest space, we do it in partnership with the Architectural Association with their support. So they've given us this space and the support of the uh, a director, uh, Ingrid Schroeder. And it's a really, it's a really kind of like it's, uh, throughout these years, it's really interesting how, as we moved in between these spaces, each space kind of brought both, like it extended our community a little bit on the one hand, but then on the other hand, we got, uh, we done different experiments. Instead of a kind of having this preconceived idea of what the library is and what happens in the library, we try to like find this way almost anew and find uh, what feels right to us. This like newest location, the most exciting thing about being in the AA is that actually architecture is like big part and like spaces is like big part of what we're looking at and like on how spaces inform the library experience. So I'm actually really looking forward to like all the possible collaborations that will happen in this space. And- Talking about collaborations, tell us how it works. First of all, I love the location, love the high ceilings, and Bloomsbury is one of my favorite neighborhoods as well. Can people come in? Should they send you a message? Or what's the plan? You know, do you want to leave it permanently open to the public? How does it work if somebody's interested in Biblioteca? 
Okay, so for for the coming few months, it's going to be uh, event basis only. Mm-hmm. However, at the moment we're working to have regular hours at some point in 2024, but we also do appointments for, uh, I don't know, yeah, people who would like to come and visit the library. So yes, the goal is to have regular hours. Hopefully it will happen like within yeah coming few months that's the idea but also yeah any events that we run are open to the public that's fantastic and being here i can see that it's extremely international you said especially london and paris you know there's a lot of kind of publications from here i know there's a smaller selection of ukrainian kind of print could you tell us actually a bit more about you know i know ukrainian publishing perhaps is not as big but how do you see the ukrainian publishing scene especially after everything that's happening in Ukraine in the last years as well. Yeah, I think it's actually like on a really interesting, I think it kind of like uh, coincided, maybe a bit earlier, but it coincided a bit with the time when we opened Biblioteca, where there was like this, and it's not only about Ukraine, I think like past 10 years, we've seen like a huge resurgence in like artist publishing for several reasons. One is that it became more accessible to design and print books than it was ever before. That's one thing, but also like this renewed interest. And I think it's true for Ukraine as much as any other place. I'm really excited to see that, yeah, more and more artists are considering uh, books as a medium. It's interesting how the whole artist books movement is kind of really getting traction in Ukraine right now. So I'm really, I'm really glad to see that. Thank you very much, Halib. And if you want more information about Biblioteca, do email Dan on contact at biblioteca.website. And remembering that Biblioteca is with a K. And finally on the show, I welcome back to the show Amy Astley from AD. We discuss their upcoming AD 100 list and their very first short film, AD 100, The New Taste, directed by Emmy-nominated Kate Novak. We do a lot of video at AD, and I think we're known for our video, but it was our first documentary film. It's a short film. It's celebrating the AD 100. It's a kind of a deep dive, but not too, you know, not long, but like a short, lovely film with a bit of a deep dive into several talents, their careers and projects that were in our AD 100 issue in 2023. Give us an idea for the importance of AD 100 for the brand. I think it's quite exciting. It's usually in the January edition of the magazine, which I believe will be out in the next weeks. I think it's quite nice as well to promote new designers, to celebrate the current ones as well, right? Yes, exactly, Fernando. Well, the AD 100 has been published for decades here, and it is a hugely, you know, significant honor in anyone's career. We cover interior designers, architects, and landscape designers, and, you know, it's very coveted. It's a big honor. It's very impactful on their careers, the prestige of it, the acknowledgement, but also they literally book more jobs when they're AD 100 and they can market themselves that way. So, It's an honor that remains meaningful for them, whether they're very established and have been working a long time and perhaps have been on the list before or often, or certainly for newcomers. So um, it remains exciting for all those kinds of people, you know, no matter where they are in their career. And what I've been working on since I arrived here about seven and a half years ago is just making sure that the list really reflects the 
enormous range and diversity of talent working globally and that it's embracing new talents. Well, that's always great. And and for this new short film, Media 100, The New Taste, you guys chose Kate Novak to direct as well. She's a very much uh, celebrated figure. So tell us, how was it to work as well with Kate on this? And, and of course, it's an addition. We're saying it's the first short film, but as you say, we all know the lovely AD videos as well on your YouTube page and other social media pages as well. Yes, thanks, Fernando. Well, we, we hope that we'll be doing more of these videos around the AD100, sort of lifting the veil, both for outsiders who are interested in design and for the insiders in the design industry, too. People want to understand the careers of these people in a little bit deeper dive and their projects, which we have featured, and, and sort of their path. So you really get that in this film, that deep dive. And Kate Novak was extraordinary to work with. I mean, she's an Emmy-nominated director. She's done, you know, a lot of award-winning features. She worked on the first Monday in May, The Gospel According to Andre, many, many other documentaries. So I felt very fortunate to work with her. And she's an expert and also brought a bit of an outsider eye to what we were doing, you know, not being necessarily, you know, obviously a very visual person, but she learned about design through us. And I think it's a really fresh take. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I hope people enjoy it. I want to celebrate our industry and the talents in it and really highlight them and make them better known. And people will be able to see the documentary on their usual kind of channels, right? Yes, yes. They'll see it on AD's YouTube and also on our own website. And if you don't mind, I know we're looking already ahead for the January edition, for the documentary. But, you know, the December issue is also not out now. And I have to say... One highlight for me, I loved the Karine Reutfeld as well story. I'm a big fan. Uh, love kind of a, her sexy look at the aesthetics of her flat in Paris as well. If you don't mind telling some of the highlights from the December issue. Well, just thank you for being a close reader. I really appreciate that. You know, when someone says I love it and then they give me a specific story, it's very gratifying for an editor. Uh, the December issue is our art and collecting issue every year. We always focus on the art world in different ways. The cover this year was the Rem Koolhaas home in Austria. He um, hadn't done a private residence in almost three decades, actually. The last three were like 1995, 1998, and 1991. So it was a big deal for him and for the clients and for us. You know, I felt like a real scoop to show Rem Koolhaas's project. It's an incredible project. It's on the cover of the December issue. The issue's full of art world insiders and artists like Daniel Arsham. We also have Louis Laplace, who is the Hauser and Worth architect, among many other art world clients, and it's his home in Paris. And as you mentioned, we had Kareen Reutfeld. And what I loved about her was her collection of photography in her home. I felt like she worked really, really well in the December art issue. And because she's an artist herself, you know, she's a legendary magazine editor and fashion stylist. And then that collection of photography, much of it, you know, styled by her. But she also has an extraordinary collection of drawings by Karl Lagerfeld. She was very close to him. I also find Kareen to be a very fun and inspiring person. I've known her a long time. She downsized from a larger apartment where she raised her kids in Paris into this smaller apartment. And I loved everything she had to say about it. She said she really edited out her vast collections of art, of photography, of design, and of fashion. 
can only imagine what those closets look like, exactly, right? Exactly, exactly. Then show me, but she added it down for this smaller space. It's about a thousand square feet, as I recall, working from memory. And it's mainly black inside. She loves black. She says it's the perfect color for her. And I love how cohesive she is in her fashion style. She's always been this way for decades. And she doesn't deviate in the home. And I like how the two, her, as you said, her sexy, seductive, and very, uh, you know, the color is black for her. It's it's all of a piece, you know, it's all cohesive. And I think her video is really fun. She talked about sleeping in a sleeping bag on her yes. leather bed. So that is an example of how we try to incorporate video into everything that we do. And it was, it was a big hit on Instagram and fun on TikTok too. So um, I love her final words in the story. And since you're a fan, she said, less things easier is the life. Those are exactly how she expressed herself as a, as a Parisian, less things easier is the life. And I was like, well said, those are the closing words in the article, you know, and I liked her whole spirit. Thank you very much, Jane, and you'll be able to check the documentary from Monday on AD's website and in their YouTube page. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Jack Juris. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. We're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, subscribe to the show on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. Before we go, a little song for you. Amanda Lear, Fashion Pack. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Suddenly I felt like dancing I took a car to show me to the disco scene He said, okay, you wanna see those crazy people Hustling at the door to get into Studio 54